Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Podbean podcasts and YouTube videos on my channel, Gaudium at Spez22.com. And thank you for joining us. I have a very special guest today, an old friend, actually, uh, Monsignor Andy Baker, uh, who is a priest of the Diocese of Allentown, Pennsylvania. That's how I originally know him, because DeSales University, where I taught, is in the Diocese of Allentown. And we knew him then when he was rector of the cathedral, even before then. We knew your mother. Uh, and, and, and Monsignor Baker is the rector currently at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, my seminary alma mater. Uh, so I am very familiar with the Mount, at least from 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Monsignor Baker also has the uh, distinction of having served in the Curia in the Vatican for how many for the Congregation for Bishops. I, I assume it's called the Dicastery for Bishops now. It is, it is uh, now. And how many years did you work there? Uh, eight years altogether, 2001 to 2009. And were you there at the same time that uh, Bishop James Connolly was there? Oh, I certainly was. He taught me everything I know. Well, he liked <laughs> to say that. Yes, and he's a Mountie, too. I just interviewed I just interviewed Bishop Connolly. He's an old seminary chum of mine, and... Uh, and actually, there were there are several guys that I went to the Mount uh, with who are now bishops, Bishop Conley, Bishop Archbishop Coakley. Oh, yeah. Uh, visiting. The recently retired Bishop Jekylls uh, is, is a Mount St. Mary's graduate. Uh, anybody? Am I forgetting anyone? I mean, I can't. Well, Bishop Byrne, was he in your time? Um, no, I don't think so. OK, that yeah. doesn't matter doesn't matter uh anyway it's just that the, the mount is a glorious place and i'm happy to have you here today so thank you for being here oh you're welcome and thank you for having me it's quite an honor well i just got finished interviewing last week and i'm going to post it in tandem when i post this uh bishop-elect chelinski keith chelinski father chelinski who is the rector at saint charles seminary in philadelphia and so I thought, well, that'll be good. Two, two rectors of two very successful East Coast seminaries who, that have been around for a very, very long time and have trained a lot of priests. And, and I wanted Charles to is my alma mater, too. So, oh, that's right. It was it was. And I also and I'm going to post this soon. Just got done interviewing Monsignor Heinz, who is the academic dean there uh, at Mount St. Mary. So anyway, let, let's get right to it. Let's begin with. Uh, just how is Mount St. Mary Seminary doing? And for those who don't know, Mount St. Mary Seminary uh, sits on uh, a co-ed college campus, Mount St. Mary's University, which is the oldest independent Catholic uh, university in the United States. I believe began what, 1808? 1808. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. I think Georgetown began in 1805, but it's Jesuit, of course, and not independent. Uh but anyway, so that and it's in Emmitsburg, Maryland, which for those who don't know, it's about a 20 minute drive south from Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, down Route 15 uh, and a short drive to Washington, D.C. So anyway, how, how is the Mount doing? No, I think we're doing very, very well. You know, uh, just uh, pointing out a little bit of that history, Larry, uh, in 1808, actually, Father Dubois founded this place as a petite seminaire. So as a minor seminary. And so it was originally founded not so much as a university. Um, but as a seminary, and then the university kind of grew out of it. And, uh, um, you know, we're doing well. Uh, this past fall, um, we uh, had 166 seminarians uh, here, wow. which is the largest um, major seminary, American major seminary uh, in the world, really. 
Uh, I like to say in the universe because we haven't found a seminary on Mars yet. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think we're doing very, very well. We've, we're also adapting to some new guidelines from our bishops, which, which is really an adaptation of the, the uh, universal guidelines from the Holy See. Uh, we started this past year uh, in August, uh, a propedeutic stage. Well, now, if you can say that word 10 times fast, you'll get a, a, uh, an award, I'm sure, um, which is a, an initial stage of formation with something new for us. Uh, it's housed over at the Daughters of Charity. You might remember their rather yeah. large complex, uh, not uh, too far from here, about two miles. Um, so when we started this past year, uh, we have a, a large number of seminarians. Twenty nine of them were in this propedeutic stage. Um, and I think things are going fairly well. Right now, the men are out on their spring break. Um, so things are a bit quiet around here. Uh, but uh, but I, I must say the morale is still very strong. They're getting a great uh, education and formation. Um, we've got a, a wonderful uh, group and team of priests as formators and lay faculty and staff. Uh, everybody is on board with the mission, which, as you know, is extremely important. Um, yeah. We, yeah. we have this uh, cohesiveness uh, among the, the formators and, and faculty staff, uh, as well as the seminarians. I mean, I, you know, they, nobody's perfect. And, and this particular generation has got its challenges. But um, I'm, I, I say to people, you know, just in a few years, the, the Calvary is coming. So you just just wait a, a little bit and you're going to have some great priests out there. Yeah, fantastic. And how long have you been rector there now? About 10 years, it seems like, right? Yeah, this is my ninth. I'll be starting my 10th in this coming fall, yes. So uh, the reason why I bring that up is that much of that cohesiveness, the curriculum, the faculty you have there, is uh, has been under your watch. So kudos to you. Uh, yeah. You won't you won't pat yourself on the back, but I will give you a nice attaboy uh, for keeping this tradition of the Mount as an excellent seminary going. 166 seminarians. I, I think when I was there, it was only around 140 or so. Uh, but we actually had ro roommates and things like that. Yeah, we, you didn't have a Keating Hall, which is what they built after your yeah. time. Yeah, so that's that's great. That's fantastic. Uh, that that it's busting its seams and doing quite well. Uh, now, so the 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 curriculum that you were talking about, uh, the excellent theology. Let's talk about that a little bit. It's one of the things I did not talk about with uh, uh, Bishop Elect Chalinsky very much at all, and I regret that uh, because I think that the kind of theology that seminarians are learning today is important. Is there an overarching theological vision to the curriculum that you have, or do you, or is it just a case where you hire quality faculty? That's the primary consideration, and then you let them do their whatever kind of theology they want to do. So, yeah, there, there is a, uh, I think, an aim here. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, the seminary is a privileged time of intellectual formation. We have other areas of formation, human and spiritual and pastoral. Uh, and we need to sort of keep that certainly in balance. But at the same time, this is a moment in, in a seminarian's life that he will never have again. Uh, as a priest, we certainly want uh, priests. And I, I, I continue to try to, uh, con you know, have intellectual formation and learn things. But this is a very privileged time. Um, and we, we believe here at the Mount um, that we need to have the seminarians be immersed into the mind of the church, which is the mind of Christ. Um, that's got to be the, the primary element to all intellectual formation, to take on the mind of Christ, which is the, the mind of Christ, his teaching, the teaching that we have uh, in, the, in the Catholic Church. Um, 
we, we have here at the Mount, I think, and probably was also present at your time, Larry, too, um, a very strongly oriented Thomistic foundation, not exclusively, but Thomistic foundation, yeah. because that's really what the church um, recommends. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is, um, you know, the solid foundation for, for theology. Um, we also, uh, and I, I think this is probably true of, of any seminary, but particularly here, because we have men in what we call the discipleship stage studying philosophy, that becomes a real ground for their theological endeavor and their theological um, training and education. Um, there has to be a cohesiveness between both of those, uh, that uh, philosophy really serves as that basis for theological uh, inquiry. That's um, very important. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Yes, no, I think that's extremely important, especially in today's world. I was just going to mention to you, Larry, that um, you know during our fall and spring break, uh, the men have just come back um, from an evangelization mission trip. They, go, they were at Virginia Tech University over the last couple of days working with the college chaplain there and focused missionaries. And they come back and they say, you know, now I know why, under, why I studied philosophy first. Uh, because the questions that are coming in their conversations with especially students on college campuses um, really have to do with, you know, what is real? Um, what is the truth? Uh, who is God? Why is there suffering? Basic questions. Um, that they, they really struggle with. And that needs to be, as I said, the foundation for theological endeavor. Then the other aspect of it, which is extremely important, is that they see their intellectual formation as integral to their spiritual formation, um, that they really do theology on their knees, uh, which is a, a often cited phrase. Um, I think that's extremely important, and that's integrated into their spiritual lives, and also that they, they pray their theology and theologize their, their prayer. Um, so, yeah, those are just kind of, kind of the base, some of the basic characteristics that I, I envision here at the Mount. The philosophy that they study at the Mount, is that, do they get that from over at the university or in the seminary itself? A little bit of both. It's mainly the uh, faculty of philosophy that's at the university. Um, we do have um, uh, one of our priests that's able to has a degree in philosophy that's able to teach, um, but it's mainly of a, a very good faculty of philosophy at Mount St. Mary's University. Yeah, very good. And I'm glad to hear about the sort of Thomistic emphasis. I'm not so certain that when I was there in the 1980s that there was a strong Thomistic. I mean, we had Father Zilla. And, oh, and, yes. Famous. Uh, and famous the, now gone on to his reward. But he was a great teacher, great priest, great role model, and, and a brilliant Thomist, and we learned from him. But by and large, most of the systematics courses were taught by Monsignor Satterfield, and he was very Ronarian. <laughs> so, oh, really? uh, yeah, 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 he was very, and he was a great teacher, and I learned a lot from him. I don't mean to disparage him at all. I'm just sure. saying I'm glad to see. I think this is true of many seminaries now that there is a swing away from kind of. Ronarianism or more highly speculative theologians of this or that wing of the church and a grounding more in Augustine Aquinas, the great, the great thinkers of the church. And, and so I, I'm happy to, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. We still need uh, to keep it certainly open to von Balthasar. I mean, of 20th oh, century, yeah. Boyer, yeah. et cetera, Congar. But, um, but to have that, that grounding, I think is very important and yet still be able to expand, um, well, you know, this is very important. One of the reasons why I grew to love von Balthasar and Ratzinger and De Lubach and Congar and all of these guys is because my undergraduate degree was in philosophy. I went to minor seminary in Kentucky, and it was very Thomistic. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Very scholastic, very Thomistic. And I don't, I don't look back on that with regret at all. Had I not had that Thomistic, Thomistic grounding, I would not have understood why a Ratzinger, a Balthazar, a Congar, these guys, why what they were doing was so important. And so, yeah, yeah I think you, I think you need to have both those things. Anyway, <clears throat> I don't want to dominate, uh, dominate the conversation here. I just want to say this, and I, I'll toss this out there and see, see what you'll say about this. I, I think one of the, along the lines of, you know, theology, you know, they'll never have this opportunity again to study theology in depth like this, unless they go on for further studies, but that won't be most of them. And and also a grounding in the church's liturgical life, you know, in a kind of almost quasi-monastic setting. All of that's very important. But there there are those out there, and I asked this same question to Father Chalinsky, out there who say, oh, seminaries are outdated. They They've seen their day. It's gone. That whole monastic model for training priests, it doesn't get them ready for, you know, life in the parish. And so, so let's do away. Let's just put guys in houses of formation and have them take classes at universities and live in parishes, all this kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and I said to Father Chalinsky, and then I'll ask you for your comment. You know, I'm a father. I mean, a biological father. Right. And no amount of classes that I took would have prepared me for what it, people could tell me what it's like to have a child, but you don't know until no. you have a child. So, so I think it's a bit of a red herring. This is my opinion to say seminaries don't pre prepare men for parish life. Well, yes and no, they do yeah. in one sense. And we'll come back to that. But nothing can prepare you for parish life until you're in a parish. You know that. Right, so anyway, right. what do you think of that argument? Get rid of the seminaries. Yeah, yeah, I and I've I've been a pastor and I um, for a number of years, as you know, at the Cathedral Parish in Allentown, and uh, I've been an assistant pastor. And um, coming here, uh, th there's not a sense of it being a monastic life at all. I I think that's maybe previous years, decades ago, that might have been the case to some extent. Um, but I, 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 you know, those kinds of people, I'd say, well, come and visit, and you yeah. might see that there's there's quite a difference here. And I, and I certainly would agree, and I've said this to the seminarians, listen, I can't prepare, we can't prepare you for everything whatsoever. This is just the beginning of formation. And that's one of the keys to um, both the new program of priestly formation and that now the USCCB has published an, a, a document on ongoing formation. This is just initial formation. This is just the beginning. Um, when you get into a parish, it's going to be a different way of life. Uh, it, it, it will mean an application in a, in, a, in a pastoral way of all that you've been learning. Um, and there'll be different um, things emphasized. Like for now, yes, the intellectual life is very much uh, emphasized here. Um, there is a, uh, an obtaining of a degree, et cetera, et cetera. There's also pastoral formation as well, but um, that's going to continue and ought to continue in the parish. There's a lot of on-the-job training that I experienced that you, you can't just um, you know, uh, do here in the initial stages of formation. They need a time, they need a foundation first. Um, it's like building a house. You know, it's like saying, well, you know, we, we really think it's all about the roof. So why should we build the foundation? Well, no, you got to start with the foundation first before you get the roof on. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's interesting. Uh, I hope viewers listen to the Father Chalinski 
Bishop Alek Chilinski interview before this one, uh, because I'm going to keep repeating that's That's exactly the answer that he gave, which with regard to the idea that seminaries follow this monastic model that's outdated. He's monastic. No, <laughs> hardly. It's hardly monastic anymore. Maybe what was 50 years ago, or so, but it's hardly that anymore. And of course, the Mount sits on a college campus. So, so it's it's hardly monastic. Now, a, a related issue to me along those lines, and I think this is true, so true that never again will they have this opportunity. It's not just theological formation. It's, and I already mentioned this, but I want to double down on this a little bit, liturgical formation, yeah. uh, that they'll never again have an opportunity in a sense to really, unless they're in a very special parish, to, to experience liturgies of that kind of beauty and, and intensity that they do in the seminary. Um, what kind of emphasis do you think seminaries in general, and in the Mount in particular, what kind of emphasis are they placing on liturgical formation of, of seminarians? Is there a particular direction that it's going in? Are a lot of the seminarians drawn towards more traditional expressions in the Mass? What do you do with it? That kind of thing. Right. Well, going back to the intellectual formation, you know, in the mind of the church, uh, it's also celebrating the mass and the sacraments uh, in the, w with and in the mind of the church. To, to, and I, I always say to the men, you know, celebrate the mass as a priest as the church wishes it to be celebrated. And if you do that, you really know what that is and do that well, it's uh, beautiful. It's stunningly beautiful. Um, and that uh, here at the Mount, I think we do very well. It's formative in the sense that it helps kind of form his liturgical life, his prayer life, but it also gives him a model by which he can begin to think about as a priest, how should I celebrate the mass and the, and the sacraments? Um, and so I, I really, I, I do think that it's, it's um, you know, uh, addressing a need that the seminarians have. They do tend to be more traditional in their devotional life and liturgical life. I think they're really looking for the beauty of, of, yeah liturgical life. They don't always get that, Larry, as you well know. I mean, sometimes uh, growing up in their parishes, some are converts as well. So they, they haven't had that. And so they're really longing for it. Um, but what I try to do is to say, all right, no, but always in the mind of the church, always with the church, um, not trying to go back, go forward. It, it's If you really take a look at what the church offers us, it is uh, incredibly beautiful. Um, and it is attractive for other people, too, if you do that well uh, and, and do it uh, right. Yeah, I think that's important uh, because there is a lot of rhetoric on the Internet these days uh, from radical traditionalists, you know, that the, the bogus ordo and, and phrases like that, you know, right. only the traditional Latin mass is reverent enough and beautiful enough. Proven and valid. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. And some people saying, oh, the Novus Ordo is an invalid liturgy. Yeah. Uh, most of them don't go that far, but there is that fringe element. And I don't know. I mean, I've always been worried that maybe a lot of young seminarians who are on the Internet are, are tempted by by such messages. So I do think it's important that. Yeah. And I think you're right. They are. There's a temptation out there. Um, it's easy for them to read the headlines to get in, you know, go down the YouTube um, rabbit hole. Um, with, with certain people and certain YouTube channels um, that, that kind of lead them in, into the wrong place. But again, being a, a, a man of, of the church and, and the, according to the mind of the church, 
there is so much there. And so what we try to offer is the, the best of the best, uh, the best yeah. music, the best um, vestments, the, the best um, uh, liturgical, uh, if you don't mind me saying yeah. so, experience um, for them to, to be immersed in it and then hopefully to imitate it. But we do have to, we have to sometimes correct them too, because um, yeah, there's a, there's a few that, that want to go in a different direction. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, you know, they're also young. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, right. I mean, I remember when I was a young seminarian, I was a fire breathing little Torquemada mini me, <laughs> you know, hunting out heresy, you know, then I matured and like, okay, uh, yeah. just calm down chap. <laughs> so right. The church is not burning down. Yeah. Uh, and so, but so then, so they have that liturgical model and then they go out in the parish and then, then they have to confront the reality of, of parish life, which often does not meet their expectation. I mean, I know a priest who, um, this is many years ago now, uh, he had, he got it. He's freshly ordained, got out to this parish, and he had all these grand ideas about liturgy and music and starting a choir. But there was a woman who was the music director and she was the cantor and the organist and all that kind of. And she had been there for 40 years. She was an institution. And I mean, she crooned away up in the choir loft in a register that nobody could follow and so forth. Yeah, yeah. But his hands were kind of tied. All right. Because people loved her. Right. And they were willing to they were willing to have lousy music at mass mm -hmm. just to, so that they could, you know, make her happy or whatever. What do you do, you know, as a young priest when you enter into a situation like that? Yeah. Have you ever have you ever had to deal with something like that? To some extent? Yes, I, I, I have. Um, and I know that it is a reality in, in today's kind of world and church. I, I think you're really highlighting the importance of what we call human formation, right? So it's yes. trying to apply in the pastoral uh, realm something that he has learned uh, in the liturgical and maybe more intellectual um, and uh, doing it in such a way that, uh, you know, he, he doesn't end up, um, you know, burning the house down uh, or literally his parish down because he, he takes the steps. So, um, yeah, one step at a time, you know, it, 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 and it can be done, but it might take some time. We yes. have to also weigh well the one's preferences as opposed to one's principles. So sometimes there are certain preferences, like in, in, the, in the realm of music, um, that you might want to put either on hold, wait, get better training, help the people to understand and take the time and it's also, you know, you may not ever get to the to the point before you're, you know, you're transferred uh, of having it just the way you like it. Um, but that some of that might be more preferential, what I'd really prefer than necessarily what's absolutely necessary. Um, those things that are absolutely necessary, you need to work on first uh, when it comes to yeah. the literature uh, and then preferences slowly, surely with kindness with education. And that's, I think that's the key, honestly, Larry, just as these men have been formed. So, um, those that are involved in, in various, you know, choirs, ministries, working in the liturgy in the parish also need that formation. Uh, that might take some time. They may not yeah. have had the formation or have been a little bit deformed, uh, in, in some way with regard to the liturgy. So it takes time. It takes formation. And the priest needs to be able to give that formation. Yeah. You know, I told Bishop Conley in my interview with him 
last week. You know, I, on December 8th, I attended my local parish here, territorial parish, and, you know, Feast of the American Exception, and they were singing Gentle Woman, uh, oh. one of my least favorite Marian hymns, if you can even call it a hymn of all time, you know, and my parents parish in Lincoln, Nebraska, Bishop Conley's diocese, they still sing all the St. Louis Jesuit songs. So yeah, you, you know, it takes time. Yeah. All right. It does. It takes time. Now with regard to uh, the, the, we discussed the sort of human factor, the liturgical factor, how important those things are. I want to come back to the, the, the to the theological training. Uh, one of the things that I think that the laity, uh, I'll speak for the laity here. I will presume to speak for all of the laity. Uh, one of the things I think that we want is better homilies, mm. better homiletics from priests. And, you know, you know, the old Latin phrase, nemo dot quod non habit. You cannot give what you do not have or do not possess. And if, if you don't have anything to say, then you're not going to have anything to say. And you're going to end up with homilies you know, that are kind of superficial and they, you, know, you wing it and it's just not really of any depth or anything. And, and so this is why I think it's, it's really important for seminaries to train seminarians theologically with an eye towards their catechetics and their preaching. Um, I, I'm assuming you do that, right? <laughs> yes, yes, we do. I mean, you know, just even in some of the scripture courses, um, uh, that their exegesis are actually on passages that they will someday preach on. Um, Good. But, but also we, we try to, and I absolutely agree with you, Larry. I think that that's critically important, especially for people of today. They're one, if you will, contact with understanding the word of God in their lives. Uh, and, um, you know, a, a teaching moment is that, that eight to 10 minutes at most uh, of, of a homily on a Sunday. That may be the only time the average prisoner even hears from their priest, right? Yeah. Um, so um, we really try to uh, work hard with the men to be very, very well prepared. We're a little strict on it. You know, write it out. We're going to go through it with you. We're going to then have you give it. We'll give you feedback. Um, and I, I think that um, we, we try to be as, as um, again, maybe strict is not the best word, but, but really intense on making sure that they know what they're saying, they're well prepared when they say it, uh, and they get feedback while still here in the seminary. Um, because, you know, out in the parish, people are, can be very nice. It may be an absolute terrible homily, but they won't tell you that. Um, right. Here is the time in which you've got to say, well, you know, you could have said this a little bit better, or this could have been done uh, you know, in a different way, or here's a suggestion for the next time. Um, I find the seminarians to be very open to those kinds of suggestions, including from their own classmates. So they get into a, um, when they start critiquing, they critique their own classmates and they know they're going to be critiqued. Um, when they're preparing their homilies, they're in a good sense in the uh, kind of mode of critiquing themselves. I, I always tell them, you know, the, the best thing to do as a preacher, the best thing is not your mouth, but your ears to listen to yourself, um, yeah. to listen yeah. as other people would be listening to you. And, and, and that can help you be a good preacher. Seems to me, too, the art of being a good homilist, I mean, I was a teacher for many years, is pretty similar to being the art of being a good teacher, a theology yeah. teacher. And, it, and the art involves, you, number one, you have to have prudence. Uh, you, you, you have to 
make prudential judgments about what's appropriate to say, what's not appropriate to say. Uh, and yet at the same time, you want to be bold and provocative. Okay. And that's not an easy thing to pull off being as bold and as provocative as the gospel is while not being offensive or imprudent, <laughs> you know? So, you know, what, you as a priest, how, how have you negotiated that? And I'm assuming Ooh. you're, you know, go ahead. It's a fine line. It, it, it really is. And you know, you're never going to please everybody. We've got a congregation out there that are coming from, you know, different ages, different perspectives. They've got all sorts of things going on in their lives. Um, so I, you know, I always think that it's, it's good to, uh, at the beginning, um, get to know your people well so that you know how to apply the Word of God to their lives, um, to be challenging, um, and, and to make sure that you're helping them grow in discipleship. That's not always easy. Um, it might make some people feel uncomfortable. Um, I, I think that sometimes, too, the, one of the, the best ways to approach a difficult topic is, is also to provide examples and stories so that people can at least see that this is possible to, uh, you know, this aspect of the gospel is possible to, to apply to my life, maybe through the life of a, of a saint or an example that you have. Um, those kinds of things, especially people of today, uh, I, I find to be very important. The other thing is, um, as Pope St. Paul VI said in, in Evangelium Nunciandi, you know, the people of today, um, you know, they, they appreciate probably more witnesses than they do necessarily uh, the, the preached word, but we need to have both. Yeah. And so by having a, an integral life myself as, as a priest and living a true priestly life, it does help people accept the message of the gospel, even when it might be difficult. Um, and so having that integral, if you will, sincere, uh, good priestly life, an example for them and witness of, of life uh, helps them swallow sometimes a little more difficult pill. Uh, when it comes yeah. to challenging aspects of the gospel. It's interesting uh, to stay on this theme of homiletics, because I think it's so very important. Uh, I sometimes wonder, Monsignor, if homilies today should not presume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I really don't know, but homilies today should presume uh, a more evangelizing posture almost than a catechizing posture, that there has to be more a recognition that the soil that you are tossing seeds into is often quite rocky. And so just quoting catechisms and papal documents and things like that isn't necessarily going to bear fruit, that you almost have to engage in a kind of preambula fide. You, and once again, here's where philosophy comes in, you know, where you have to realize you're re-evangelizing the baptized in some way. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I, I do, Larry. You know, there's a, a church uh, near the Mount where you're leaving their parking lot, and there's a sign as you're leaving the parking lot of the church that says you're now entering mission territory. Um, I think that's very true. Christendom is over. I mean, the, the Christendom, not the college. I mean, Christendom, <laughs> as in, yeah. you know, the, the sort of the, the Christian culture and, and support, it's not there anymore. It's, it's gone. Um, it's not even heartfully there. It's gone. And we have to, in our preaching, um, under, not understand that, but also preach to that fact. Um, so, yeah, I think it does need to be more, in the best sense of the term, evangelical uh, and emphasizing the basis of the faith and just the kerygma itself. Uh, I've been very, you know, I, I've been reading a couple of um, books about this, 
uh, some coming out of the University of St. Mary, um, and, and also another book that talks about the importance of putting the kerygma back into our, our teaching um, and preaching. Uh, it's, it's something that people haven't even heard. Uh, they might have bits and pieces of catechesis and probably not very good, um, but just to tell them, you know, Christ died to save us from sin and death, well, that might be a new concept. Um, yeah, yeah. So or if, that needs to be emphasized. If, and even if they've heard it, maybe they don't have the faintest idea what it really means. It's kind right. of formulaic and doesn't sink in. By the way, yeah, the University of Mary, there's that book from Christendom to Apostolic Mission, I think it's the first one, and the new one Very is good, yeah. Religion of the Day. They're both, I've mentioned this in numerous podcasts now. They're both short books. They're not expensive. And boy, do they do they get to the, the nub of the issue, uh, right. if you ask me. Uh, I, I think they're very, very, very good little books. All right, now, I'm reading that Religion of the Day. I think it's very good. I'm just in, in the midst of it now. Yeah, it's it's just they just cut right to the chase, don't they? They just get right to it. Or they do. Yeah. Uh, and I regret I, mean, I was supposed to give a talk at the University of Mary last year, but I had to there, I can't remember the reason why there was a conflict. I had to back out. But anyway, so my apologies to University of Mary. Uh, at any rate, um, what problem? Let's let's shift gears a little bit. What problems are on the horizon? Um, what what you know, I was in seminary in the 1980s. There was no Internet. There were no cell phones. Uh, there was no Internet pornography. Uh, any of that kind of stuff. Now, now you really are in a digital age, a different yeah. era. Does that present formators at a seminary with a unique set of problems? It certainly does. Yes. Um, and it was not something that I grew up with as well, but these men uh, have grown up in literally a di digital age. Um, they don't know anything else, but having a screen in front of them, even as kids, you know, you see these parents that give, you know, the two-year-old the iPad just to keep them busy. You know, that, that, so they've had screens for a very long time. Um, you might remember, Larry, I, I was in 1997, I was chaplain of Lehigh University, Catholic chaplain of Lehigh University, and I bought a sweatshirt. And um, just at, uh, at the Super Bowl party that we had here with the seminarians, I was wearing the sweatshirt, and the seminarian said, oh, that's, that's probably a pretty old sweatshirt. I said, it goes back to 1997. He said, that sweatshirt's older than I am, Monsignor. Um, so the, these men have grown up literally in that digital age that uh, presents real problems with attention, first of all, just uh, being able to work hard for an extended period of time. Uh, it unfortunately opens up um, a temptation for pornography, internet pornography, that's literally in your pocket, you know, with your, with your smartphone. Um, and uh, because they're so used to the screen, uh, that's, um, it, 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 it's kind of addictive. Uh, it really is addictive when you use it too much. Um, and that, that causes all sorts of problems in their, just in their social ability to interact with others. Um, their, I guess I said their, their concentration, their ability to work hard for a longer period of time away from the screen. Um, so this affects them, humanly speaking, spiritually speaking. Uh, like, how do you spend a, a holy hour without a screen? Um, and intellectually, and then pastorally, just, just um, you know, as I said, they, they have sometimes difficulties interacting well with, with other people because they're so used to uh, being friended um, on Facebook 
but is, that's not real friendship. How do you develop a, a true relationship with other people, uh, particularly in a Paris setting? So it, it does present a lot of challenges, that in particular. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I certainly, I'm glad I'm not in your shoes, Monsignor, because I, I think that is an enormous, uh, I just know, let's just take pornography. I, mean, I just know from when I was a professor at DeSales University, I always made a point in, in all of my classes to spend about 20 to 25 minutes at some point in the semester to address the issue of pornography. And it was amazing to me. And I would say to my students, after class, I have office hour and you're free to come to my office to discuss this if you want. Door open. <laughs> there won't oh, be a... Yeah, you, you know. Flood doors uh, open, yeah. Yeah, you know. Uh, and so the amazing thing was the number of young men that came into my office said, Dr. Chap, I have a huge problem and I don't know what to do about it. Mm. And the number of young women that came into my office, Dr. Chap, my boyfriend has a huge problem. And he yeah. doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, and I'm assuming that the problem has only gotten exponentially worse. And so I'm sure that as a seminary rector, there's no way you could possibly set up as a rule uh, no young man who has ever been a habitual viewer of pornography is going to be allowed into the seminary, uh, because if you were to make that rule, you would probably have to eliminate eliminate ninety a good number of men. Unfortunately, when they first come in, yes, yeah, addiction is another level. That's something else uh, that yeah. we would not allow. But um, yeah, the habitual yeah. aspect. That's why we've incorporated into our propedeutic stage, this initial stage of formation, uh, a technology detox. So they've got to plug them in and put all of their uh, electronic equipment in one room and they only have limited access to it. And I'll tell you, I had one of the one of the uh, priests who had gone over to our propedeutic stage seminarians to give them a, a conference. Um, and he said, it's amazing. He said, they're all looking at you. Uh, they're all paying attention. They all seem to be involved in class because they don't have any any computers in front of them. They're, they don't have any electronics yeah. in front of them. They actually have to take notes on a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> but that's and and they reacted very well. The seminarians are reacting well to it. Yeah. No, I think that's great. Uh, by the way, I, on my end, at least your 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 video has frozen, but at least your voice can still be heard. So that's good. Um, well, I think. Uh, there's probably nothing. You, it's I probably think we're just, frozen. Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Uh oh! Can you hear me, Monsignor? Oops! Well, we've lost Monsignor Baker. Maybe he'll come back uh, in a second. In the meantime, uh, I, I'm just going to complete my thought, which uh, we were discussing. You know, internet pornography, the digital age, seminary. There he, he's coming back. And uh, so my apologies to my listeners, but I think Monsignor Baker is on his way back. So just hang on a second, everyone. Uh, I'm not really good at editing these things, so uh, <laughs> I tend not to edit. Can you hear things. me, Larry? I can hear you uh, wow. very loud and clear. Uh, we've lost your video, but at least the audio is there. Uh-oh. So he's backed out again. But anyway, I think the issue, the issue of, of Internet pornography is a huge one for this generation of young men in particular. And it's something that seminaries, I really do believe, uh, have to address and and 
Well, here we go. Here we go. Let's see. Let's see what we got here now. Anyway, um, I to can my you hear view, me, Larry. No, I can't. I can hear you. I can hear you. I yes. Can't seem yes. to get something happened and my video went. Well, that's okay. Let's just do the audio. We're fine. Can you can you still hear me? Let's just. Yes, see I definitely up. can. I think the vast majority of people that uh, tune into these episodes of mine do do so simply on the on the podcast audio version. In, anyway, so anyway, I I was going to suggest. Are you are you are familiar? You, are, you familiar? Uh, are you are you there? Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. I was going to suggest viewers pick up and read. Are you familiar with the writings of Bishop Eric Varden, who is the Bishop of Trondheim, uh, Norway at all? Uh, he's written a great little book on chastity that I think is just fantastic. No, I've never heard of it. I've heard of him, but I didn't know he wrote a book on chastity. Yeah, it's it's excellent. And I and I highly recommend it to to, to anybody, not just for seminarians or priests or whatever. I think anybody it's a, it's a brilliant little book on on, on the virtue of chastity. But anyway, let's let's move on to to something else, which is uh, near and dear to my heart, which is we ha we've talked about the, the liturgical formation, the theological formation. And we touched on the human formation. And that's, of course, important. But what what does that mean in a sense? And what I'd like to focus on are uh, the apostolates, what we called in my day field education, where you would go out and I worked with the you know, uh, migrant workers in apple orchards and the prison and, and stuff like that. What sort of apostolates does the Mount have its seminarians do these days? Oh, I, I think we've lost Monsignor Baker entirely. All right. Well, uh, we may have to cut this short, everyone, and we might have to do a part two uh, of this of this Podbean podcast and YouTube video so we can complete the conversation with Monsignor Baker, because I really would like to know uh, what the apostolates are, I, because I think this is a very important aspect of seminary formation. I really do. Uh, one of the most uh, you know, neglected things in modern, I think, uh, in the modern church is this bifurcation between uh, those Catholics who are concerned with social justice and those Catholics who, who seem more concerned with, uh, for want of a better term, with sexual issues, sexual morality, and that kind of thing. Are, are you back, Monsignor? No, he's not. Uh, we're having definite troubles there. Uh, so anyway, so I, I think this is very, very important. Uh, the social justice aspect of, of seminary formation. Uh, I spent, when I was a seminarian at Mount St. Mary's, I took uh, some time off and I lived in the Dominican Republic for quite a while. Uh, and not just to learn Spanish, but also in, in, to, in order to better understand uh, you know, cultures from the Caribbean, uh, Hispanic cultures in general, and so on. And it really changed my life. It, it utterly changed the direction of my of my thinking as a seminarian. And, you know, my own thinking is that all seminarians should be in some sense required to do some kind of missional work like that. And they probably are. I'm probably just ignorant of the fact that they're not, uh, because I think in this day and age, it's very, very, very important for priests to be engaged in the burning social justice issues of our time uh, and and I, I think a priest that is not connected. Okay. Okay. Again, uh, I, I think we've. I'm, we're, we're... I'm kind of on my phone. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I can hear you. 
can you hear me now? No, we lost him again. So I think I'm just going to end this and we'll try to pick this up. This. Oh, there he is. All right. He's can you hear back. me now? Oh, I can hear you now. OK, so we've had a little 10 minute glitch. I hope we didn't lose a bunch. I, I, I've said before it, while you were gone, I'm terrible at editing these things. I've tried to edit them before and just butchered <laughs> them, even lost a couple. So people can just be patient anyway. I'm one on of the my thing- phone. Okay. Well, we don't have to stay on here very much longer, but I did want to pick your brain just a little bit more. I was talking while you were gone with my audience about what we, you know, you mentioned human formation and I know the Mount, I mean, back in my day, they were called field education apostolates. I don't know what you call them today. Uh, How extensive is that? Because I think this is a, when I look back on my seminary formation, I realize now that that was one of the most important things that I did as a seminarian were those field education apostolates. So what is the Mount doing in that regard? Yeah. So we have um, many different placements. We call it uh, pastoral formation experience sites where they go to. Uh, And it is, um, you know, primarily for their pastoral formation. And so we, we tried to give them a variety of experiences during their time here at the Mount. So some of them, uh, you know, at the beginning though, they might go to a school um, then to uh, an institution like a prison or a hospital, um, then a parish. Certainly as deacons, they are there in a parish for much of the weekend. Um, and we, we, we do it by hours, so it's not a particular day. Like at St. Charles, I think they have still uh, a particular day that they go out. We, we have men going out on different days, uh, and we just track the number of hours that they're, they're going. Um, and they, they visit and they get feedback from their supervisors, we set goals in their pastoral formation so that they can um, try to work on particular areas that maybe they don't have some you know, strengths in. Um, and this is, I think it's very important because it, it really sets the tone for what they're here for, which is ultimately to be pastors. And that pastoral experience is important to have um, and being mentored by their parish priests. I think that's probably one of the things we're emphasizing more is that uh, the pastoral supervisor, as we used to call them, is really needs to be more of a mentor. Um, so that if he's teaching in the school or if he's working in the parish, if he's going to the hospital or working in prisons, uh, working in the soup kitchen, that, that um, he has someone there that can um, be with him, that can make suggestions on how to improve, um, that can give feedback to the seminarian and to us as a seminary, uh, just to... to I, I think ultimately to help them gain a pastoral heart, the Christ heart. Um, and so it's not just pastoral formation too. It's also very much human formation um, and, and learning uh, how to be that pastor according to the, the mind and heart of Christ. And oh, is there any emphasis placed on uh, in particular uh, ministry to uh, Spanish speaking uh, Catholics? Yes, especially those that have some capability. We have a, a number of sites that demand, um, you know, either parishes that are primarily Hispanic, working with Catholic charities, uh, and even doing interviews with people that are coming searching for services in Spanish. Um, we, we really want most, if not all, of our men, once they're ordained priests, to at least be able to celebrate the sacraments and have a basic conversation in Spanish. Uh, so we have a Spanish mass here, a completely Spanish mass, including the deacon giving a homily in Spanish uh, on Thursdays uh, every week here at the seminary. 
Uh, and there are these, as I said, these particular sites um, where men that have some capability and maybe even a little bit more advanced might be able to do uh, some advanced work in the on the pastoral site in Spanish. Well, I, I think that's actually I mean, as you know, I, I mean, I run a Catholic worker farm uh, and the Catholic worker movement is near and dear to my heart. And one of the messages of Pope Francis that I, I do particularly like, you know, is is that he wants a church that smells like the sheep. Uh, a, a church of the poor. I mean, look at the name that he chose, Francis, you know, right. uh, the saint of, of poverty, the saint of the poor. Um, to, to, to what extent do you think, I'm not, I'm not going to put you on the spot, say, what's the Mount doing about this? You know, right. to what extent, though, in, in looking towards the future, seminaries in general, not just the Mount, how prophetic do you think priests are going to have to be? In other words, priests, I, in my opinion, are going to have to also be social critics. In the, in, the, in the vein of the Old Testament prophets, in a sense, to, to use a cliche, to be able to speak truth to power, to be able to give voice to the voiceless, to be on the side of the disenfranchised members of our society. Uh, given the fact that probably a lot of seminarians come from fairly middle class backgrounds, uh, right. I don't have necessarily a, a great experience of that kind of being disenfranchised. Do you see that as something that seminaries should be focusing on in, in the future? Oh, most definitely. And I think uh, peripheries um, that physically, if you will, and existential peripheries. Um, one of the things that we've incorporated into our propedeutic stage, again, that initial stage of formation, is that any kind of pastoral work is not done uh, in a parochial setting, but among the poor, among the sick. And they they do work that's hard work, including on a farm, I might say, uh, Larry. They, they work on a lo in a local farm. But they also, uh, we want them to be working with um, the those on the peripheries, those that, that are voiceless, those that need assistance, immediate, sometimes material assistance, but also more existential, too. Uh, they need to be... Um, teaching people the, the faith, starting with the kerygma. That's also a periphery that I, I think that uh, priests today need to be better adapt uh, at yeah. doing. Um, and going back to a point that uh, we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, Christendom is gone. Um, so this prophetic voice has got to be ever clearer in an increasingly secular world um, that's uh, taking advantage, unfortunately, of people on the peripheries. Um, they just become statistics or uh, they 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 are there just simply to serve um, those in power. Uh, we, we go to the abortion issue too, the unborn. Um, yeah, and we know the yeah. struggle that's present there. All of that is is just what Pope Francis has called, you know, the throwaway society and what's being thrown away, who's being thrown away. It's, it's those that don't have a voice. It's it's those that don't have the power uh, in in the halls of justice or legislation yeah the unborn uh the young people that are being trafficked the elderly um the the drug addicted on our streets uh the, these these yeah the, this is all part of our of our throwaway culture i do want to uh as, as we wrap this up um and and with what in in one sense is is a I don't know if there's any way a seminary can prepare a guy for this because it goes back to what we said earlier. There's no preparing. But we do live in an era of downsizing in the church in some sense. Uh, 
Mm. parishes being closed left and right, parishes yeah. being consolidated. I think it's probably more common in many, many, many dioceses than not for a priest two years out of ordination to suddenly be pastor or pastoral administrator of two, sometimes three parishes. So, you know, it's all well and good to say, a priest should do this, a priest should do that, and we're preparing for this. What if they're just too busy? I mean, how do you prepare a young man? Because there's such a thing these days, and I know from talking to a lot of priests, and I'm sure you know even better than I do, this thing called priest burnout. Mm, yeah. You know, what? how do you prepare guys for, for the jolt to the system that they're going to face as they get out there in, in the world? I'm, I'm just trying to organize a conversation with the yeah. Holy Cross priest out in Colorado right now. We can't find two minutes to talk because he's so busy. That's right. a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really think of this in really a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, a, a priest needs to be a man of, of prayer. Um, and that might sound like too pietistic, but, you know, no. if his life is not rooted in uh, a real relationship with Jesus Christ and a constant conversation and um, really reception of grace and mercy, he's he, he's going to burn out pretty darn quickly because then it just becomes um, a profession. He becomes an activist and uh, he, he'll burn out darn really quickly. Um, so he needs to have that grounding and the holy hour is what the way we put it here at the Mount, um, a time in front of the Blessed Sacrament, real rigorous uh, and um, deep prayer life. But also um, to handle those kinds of situations, he needs to also develop the ability to have good fraternity with his brother priests uh, and looking for ways to do that because it's easy here in the seminary. I mean, his brothers are, you know, right down the hall. Uh, but he's not going to have that as a priest. And as you right. said, especially early on, he's going to be given his first parish is probably going to be fairly small out in the middle of nowhere uh, and he'll be by himself. Um, so he needs to have that connection. Um, then finally, it's it's really applying the Second Vatican Council with, when it comes to the laity. Um, the consecratio mundi uh, is that the laity need to also be called out forth and given the ability to also engage in, in, in the proclamation of the gospel in the ways that are appropriate for, for lay people, as though, you know, the priest has got to do everything. No, he doesn't, nor should he, nor is he best at doing everything. Uh, there are a lot of people that are extremely competent lay people that should be doing things that, unfortunately, the priests think, oh, I have to do. And then they just keep piling up things on, on themselves and on their schedule and um, not really allow uh, lay men and women who are, again, probably better at what's supposed to be done than, than the priest. Yeah, absolutely. I know a lot of priests uh, who say that exact same thing, successful priests. Um, like, uh, you know, you know, Father Hoffa from the Allentown yes, Diocese. I yeah, sure. I, I said, I call him Alan because, you know, I knew him from before he was one of, even a priest. I said, Alan, you know, how do you he's so busy. You know, and he's doing Bishop Schlert's got him doing everything and because he's so competent, he's so good at what he does. And he says, I pray, I pray. Right. OK, right. I make prayer a priority and a little bit of spiritual reading, a priority. Uh, if I don't have that, then I burn out, you know, and Father right. Miller, same thing. I know Father Miller, you know, he's uh, in, in that same boat. So I, I think that's that's very true. One last thing. And and this is going to be seeming like out of left field, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. It might be a generational thing. 
And so I'm curious what young seminarians are like today in terms of as they look forward to their priesthood, what they're looking forward to most about being a priest. But there's a certain, and I think you've experienced this, there's a certain uh, element, uh, a certain generation of priests that don't like hearing confessions. And they sort of let you know that they don't like hearing confessions. Uh, there's no regularly scheduled confession in the parish. You have to do it by appointment. Or if there is a regularly scheduled confession, they're always late to it, sometimes don't even show up. Uh, and maybe for good reasons, they got called away or whatever. Uh, and, and you go into the confessional and it's you're in, you're out. And it's very clear that they just, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. What do you, is is that a generational thing? And I'm not saying that's all priests of that generation, but I think it was a phenomenon. Is that do you see that among young priests, young graduates of the mount who are now priests, that they have a greater love for hearing confessions? Because I think this is really important as well. A love yeah. for hearing confessions. Yeah, we are in a time of mercy and uh, the sacrament of mercy needs to be better, um, more available to people. And I see in these young seminarians a desire for that. I, I think it was maybe a little blip on the screen. It was a phenomenon for maybe a particular generation. But um, I do the penance practicum with the seminarians, all of them, all the deacons. And I make sure that I, I'm the penitent for every one of them. We have you know, a whole practicum in which we, we take them. Uh, I, I have a you know, particular sins that I confess and see how they, they do it. And then we, we go through it. Um, and I find that they are eager, uh, to, to do it. They're a little, it's a little frightening at first, obviously. Um, and, uh, there's nothing you can do to ultimately prepare for everything. But, um, I do find them because, you know, simply Larry, it's, it's the fact that confession has been important to them. Yes. You know, they came sometimes to the church or had their reversion by way of a priest who was, um, available in confession, compassionate in confession, and um, regularly saw them for confession. And because of that, I think these seminarians in this generation sees the need for it, and they want to be that priest for somebody else. Um, so I, I, I don't. I find it just the opposite. I think they're they're very eager to Good. make the sacrament available. Excellent, because uh, you know, half an hour on a Saturday afternoon sometimes is the most inconvenient time for lay people that have families to go to confession. So I often think, and I've had priests criticize this opinion of mine, but I know like at the cathedral in Allentown, when you were there, I'm a big believer in having confessions scheduled before like daily masses or even sometime mm -hmm. before Sunday mass. And because if you build it, they will come. If you make yes. it available, it's amazing how many. So, but I've had priests say to me, oh, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that because then all you get are the scrupulosity types who are in there every single day, you know, confessing that, you know, and I'm thinking, well, then, you know, deal with that. What do you think? Yeah. I, I, I think well, that, that wasn't my experience at the cathedral, honestly. I mean, Larry, I was their pastor for six years. And we had confessions before our two daily masses, before the 630 mass and before the eight, plus on Saturdays, plus an Advent in Lent, I started having confessions available before every Sunday mass. And I'll tell you, in my six years there as pastor, um, there may have been a handful of times, literally four or five times in all of those years in which no one came before daily mass confessions. There was always somebody. And yeah, you, sometimes you do get some of the scrupulous, but Honestly, it's, it's people that have what I would call devotion to the sacrament, yes. um, not not the 
scrupulous people. Sometimes, again, you do meet and you got, like you said, you got to deal with that. That's just life. Um, the other thing that I discovered was when we started adding confessions on before Sunday Mass and Advent and in Lent, I thought, well, maybe we'll, we'll somehow take away from those people or those, the numbers that are coming before daily Mass. That wasn't the case at all. Um, we got more people um, because it yeah. was more convenient. Uh, it was more available. Uh, it was more emphasized. And then you start to preach it. Uh, and then, you know, if you build it, they will come. Yes, if you preach it, they will come. And they preach do. it like in our parish. Uh, I go to, to the uh, an Anglican ordinary at parish, believe it or not. Father Eric Bergman, our pastor, he has confessions before mass on, on Sunday. And it's, it has now gotten to the point where he has to cut them off and go say mass and then and then and then announce I'll be back in the confessional after mass for anybody that I didn't have time for at the beginning. That's how successful that has been. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, that was my experience as well. I mean, I, I, at times I've had to say to a penitent, could you tell the next person in line that uh, unfortunately they'll be the last person and that after mass I'll be available um, if anybody else yeah. is still in line. So that's just, but to go back to my original question, that is great news that this generation of, of seminarians is, is you know, and I, and I is open to is much more looking forward to confession. And I agree with you. It probably has a lot to do with the fact that for many of them, confession was important in their lives. Yeah. Uh, you know, very, very important in their lives. Well, anyway, I mean, I kind of have covered all the bases uh, that, that I wanted to cover. Do you have any last points that you would like to make? Um. Well, just, just simply that seminary formation is critically important to the life of the church. It's not certainly the only thing, but critically important. And uh, just have your, your listeners just to know that please pray for us, pray for the formators, pray for the seminarians, and above all, to pray for their perseverance. That's been my prayer all throughout this my time as rector here, that they will really persevere, not only as you know to finally be ordained priests, but persevere as priests. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, here I am. I was seven years in seminary. I didn't persevere. <laughs> I got married instead, uh, but that's that's okay. But that is fantastic. Yes, the the, the to pr I, I'm glad you ended that way. Uh, that we, we we need to pray for our seminarians and their perseverance, and we need to pray for vocations. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, it seems like they go up, they go down, they go up, they go down, uh, and and so that that's I, that's probably just the cultural situation that that we're in. Yeah. Thank you so much, Monsignor, for taking time. Uh, I, my apologies I, to the listeners and viewers. We had a little it wasn't that long. It seemed like forever when you're sitting here trying to negotiate. Yeah, no, I apologize. There must be something with our Zoom. I, I don't know where our connection. Yeah. So I, uh, do you have the paid version of Zoom or the free version of Zoom? Because um, I've got the paid through the university. Yeah. Oh, OK. Well, then it shouldn't have cut you off at 40 exactly. minutes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, because that's that's what I thought for a second, because I have the paid version and it wouldn't and I'm the host of this, so it wouldn't have cut it off anyway. But anyway, thank you, Monsignor. It's always great to see you. Maybe our paths will cross again soon. Yes, uh, thank you. And my best to carry as well. And uh, I'm reading your book um, right before I go to sleep. So thanks for putting me to sleep all these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can you can li line your dog crate with it, too. There we go. All right. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Monsignor. Larry, God and bless thanks you. everyone for listening. Okay. Oh, hang on. Hang on. No, I don't want to end the meeting. I want to just uh, stop the recording.